0: Welcome to episode two of the All Things Local podcast. On this episode, I speak with Deanna Cata from the DeKalb County Mental Health Board. We learn about what the Mental Health Board actually does in our community to improve access to mental health services and the overall quality of life for all residents. Hear about the new Mental Health Court, Mental Health First Aid, and how the Mental Health Board responds during a disaster such as the tornado in Fairdale. Deanna offers tips to those studying or working in local government. She shares memorable stories that affected her own commitment to public service, and she even shares a few lessons from her first job at Dunkin' Donuts, reminding us how important relationships are, as well as the importance of looking at any situation from multiple perspectives. Join the Mental Health Board for This Is My Brave at the Egyptian Theatre this Sunday, April 7th at 3 p.m., where we will hear stories from local people who live with mental illness. If you buy online in advance, tickets are $20 for adults and $15 for students. Proceeds go to This Is My Brave, an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to end the stigma surrounding mental illness through storytelling. Buy your tickets at EgyptianTheater.org. Welcome to our podcast, All Things Local, a monthly podcast about issues and ideas in our local communities from the people who research and serve them, brought to you by the School of Public and Global Affairs at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Dr. Alicia Shadiman, Associate Professor here at NIU. We'll hear from researchers and public service workers in government and nonprofit organizations across communities about topics and issues affecting our towns, villages, cities, and neighborhoods.
1: So I'm Deanna Cata. I'm the executive director of the DeKalb County Community Mental Health Board in DeKalb County. So my first real scheduled job was at Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) And uh, it's amazing because you think, oh, Dunkin' Donuts. I had to wear this ugly flower smock and I smelled like yeast all the time. But so many lessons I learned there have carried over to the rest of my career. And one of the biggest ones is relationship building. Um, I worked the night shift quite a bit. And so it was just me and generally truckers who were coming over from um, the plants around the, the restaurant. And we would just sit there and talk. And I learned a lot about the human condition. And I learned a lot about people who lived very, very different lives than I le- lived and what their needs were and what their dreams were. And I think that really helped me learn that, you know, listening is key uh, that there's lots of different perspectives and ideas out there. And I was able to kind of cultivate that, when I was 16 years old, and that has carried me really far in my career. Um, And it was also not the best experience. I witnessed a lot of things that were not good. I saw some theft, I saw some sexual harassment. And I think once again, that was really eye-opening and shocking at the time, but helped me realize that those things can happen anywhere. It's not just something that happens to somebody else, it happens right where you are. And so that is something I've always carried with me as well. My favorite thing is that whenever I say I work for the Mental Health Board, I usually get glazed looks because people have no idea what that actually is. The state of Illinois actually has a law that the taxpayers of a community, and it can be a municipality, a county, townships, can vote to have a portion of their property tax set aside to fund mental health, substance use disorder, and developmentally developmental disability services within their county or community and so 51 years ago the taxpayers in DeKalb County voted for that referendum so what the Mental Health Board does is we are the um, the keepers of those funds so a portion of all property taxes in DeKalb County go to fund those three areas and the Mental Health Board which is myself as the executive director I have an admin assistant her name is Kathy Ostick we're the only paid staff And we have a board of nine members of the community who then direct where those dollars go. When I was growing up, I wanted to work with juvenile delinquents. That's all I wanted. When I was 15 years old, I read an article about this ranch that took care of delinquent boys. And I said, that's where I want to work. That's what I want to do. And the Mental Health Board is funding organizations. And so there, there really is an importance to know how organizations run. And I'm hoping that's some of what I was able to bring, especially since I've been hopscotching between nonprofit and government for most of my career.
0: Right. Um, so you're, you talked a little bit about what you do. What do you see as that overall mission um, for the mental health board? And how do you see that mission playing out kind of on a day-to-day basis in the mental health board work? Well,
1: I'm actually going to read our mission statement because uh, I think a lot of people glaze over when you say mission statement, but a lot of work and a lot of thought goes into that. In fact, we had uh, you help us with our mission statement and craft it, and it really is something that we believe in. It's the thread which carries us as a board to make a lot of our decisions. So through leadership and funding, the DeKalb County Community Mental Health Board supports access to high quality behavioral health care services for DeKalb County residents, which means we wanna make sure that everybody who needs services can get to those services and that those services will help them the way that they should. That's the mission of the Mental Health Board. That's how we make our decisions. That's what we look at in terms of our funding. That is the thread that pulls us through in our daily work.
0: Is there, a, is there a story or something that's happened recently that really affirmed that you're in the right place or you're doing the right work?
1: I think there's two
0: that I think really
1: resonate with me right now. And like you said, there's tons. But the way that I really look at the work that we do, we, do, we work with the agencies and the professional organizations to try to meet their needs. And we also work with the citizens and the consumers who are trying to get their mental health, substance use, and, and disability needs met. We don't often have contact with the community because we're kind of set aside in a government office and we do most of our work with the agencies. But I do hear from the community every now and then. I had a gentleman who called me who had an adult son who had obsessive compulsive disorder and he was really struggling with finding evidence-based services in DeKalb County. And it was something he said, you know, it would be really simple just to bring somebody in to help train these professionals on, you know, the evidence-based parts of OCD treatment. And so he and I had talked for a while, and uh, I called one of our providers. I called Ben Gordon Center, which is a part of Northwestern Northwestern Medicine, and said, can we do this? And it took about nine months, but we were able to bring in uh, an expert in obsessive compulsive disorder treatment and do a training for our local providers, and it was fantastic. And we had so many people attend. They learned a lot. We had private therapists who were able to come, they got some um, professional development credit for that. And the the parent who had called me had gone to the training and he called me up and said, that was just incredible that I could call and need something in the community and then watch it happen. and And that wasn't just the board, that was a, a collaboration between a lot of organizations to really make that come to light, but it made an impact. And I had a therapist who was also a parent come to me afterwards and say, You know, I never knew that what I was doing wasn't what I should be doing for my OCD clients and and how to um, really improve those relationships. I can tell you that when funding gets cut for organizations, when the first thing that gets cut is professional development. And we saw that happen in our community. We had a couple of years where the state wasn't paying for human services. And the first thing those human services cut is their professional development needs. And that is a role that the Mental Health Board can play is to help bring those uh, professional development opportunities to the community. It's something that we've really embraced because it doesn't take a lot. We can really make a big impact with that. You know, I don't know what it looks like other places, but I know for us it's a critical need. And so we're going to continue to try to meet those needs and, and utilize information from consumers and their families, as well as what the professionals are telling us they need, too. So we can balance both of those.
0: How much How much does the state influence what you're able to do on a local level, and how does that change when that state funding goes away, even if it's for a short amount of time? How does that impact the, me- the work of the mental health board?
1: So, and this is kind of, this is treading lightly, because one of the fears, one of the reasons people maybe haven't heard of mental health boards, is because we don't want the state or the feds to look at our area and say, you know what, they have local dollars. So we're not going to continue to invest in that area because they have somebody else who's going to pick up the bill for that. And so we try to do our work in a way that uh, supplements what the state and the federal um, funding sources can do, um, but doesn't supplant that, doesn't take that over because the state and feds have a responsibility to pay for what they contract for and what they've said they would pay for. With that being said, we also don't want to see anybody in our community lose services because they don't have a payer source for that. And so we really walk that line of trying to make the determination of how much do we step in um, and how much do we hold back because we need to make sure the state and feds are responsible for their piece of the pie. And, And that is a fine line to walk. So we made sure during those two years that we didn't lose any programming in, in at least the space that we work in, the mental health, substance use, developmental disability space. And we were able to have that happen. We didn't lose any programming during those two years. But now that uh, the state has a budget and you know we're under different leadership with different priorities, we're really hopeful that maybe we see some stability there that we haven't seen before. And I'll tell you that That was a part of my job I didn't realize I would have to be so in touch with, is I need to be on top of what's going on in both the state and the federal space around mental health and substance use and developmental disabilities, because what those decisions are really impacts what we can prioritize on a local level.
0: And what about other local funders? You mentioned the Community Foundation for One. Are there other local funders, municipal, city level funding that comes into this mix?
1: Those funding sources exist. Uh, most of our organizations are getting a little bit of funding from municipalities. Most of our organization are getting state and federal dollars. Um, you know, we have we fund at the mental health board really diverse organizations, and so we have some really teeny tiny organizations, and their funding sources are us, the community foundation, and donors, and that's it. And then we fund huge organizations like Northwestern Medicine that are getting funding from, you know, all sorts of insurance payer sources from. Medicaid and Medicare, from state and federal grants. Uh, So we play a different role with each of those in terms of what those needs look like. And we have to be really cognizant of, you know, are are we funding 95% of this organization? Are we funding 1% of this organization? What does that mean long term? We really have to look at all those variables when we make our funding decisions.
0: And you bring up an interesting point around those funding decisions, because I get asked all the time, how do I, how do I know what, what a good organization looks like? When, how do I know which organizations I should donate to? And you don't have to give us all your criteria, but what are those, those things that you're like, this seems to be an organization that has their, has their stuff together. They know what they're doing. They're on a good path. They're managing their money effectively on a high level. What are the kinds of things that you look at as a funder?
1: So that's, that's the always present question in what we do. And that's something that my board takes very seriously. So I have a nine-member board. They are huge stewards of taxpayer dollars. And so they need to be assured that what we invest in is a quality organization. So we're really lucky that we have Northern Illinois University here. We have partnerships. um, And so we're able to use those partnerships to help us identify what are those things we should be looking for. And so we created once again with Dr. Shadman, uh, a quality indicator checklist, which really gives us the ability to say, all right, I have a two-person office. We're not going to be able to, you know, go in and audit an organization and be able to understand everything about their performance and their finances. But there's lots of other organizations that do that. Accrediting organizations, insurance organizations, mm-hmm. state and federal grant requirements are unbelievable about how minutiae um, how the minutia they look at, we have our agencies report that to us. So who is already looking at what you do and what are they reporting? And that gives us a letter, a level of um, you know satisfaction that what we're investing in is is meaningful and quality because other organizations are proving that to us with what they're doing. And then you know that if they can tell their own story that hey, we have all these people we've helped, we've have satisfaction with the folks that we serve. Um, that gives us a level of comfort as well and deciding how we fund somebody.
0: You mentioned you had two stories. Do you have your other story?
1: So the other story is something that's happening right now, and I'm so excited about it. So uh, we we do try to interact with the con- community as much as possible. Last year we had our 50th anniversary, and we had an event, and we brought together professionals but also consumers of services. wasn't very well attended, but it was really heartfelt. And there was a young lady who participated in that who said, you know, I really liked being a part of this. And she said, I think I'd like to get on stage and tell more about my story. And she was a consumer of mental health services. So her and I started meeting, and there's a national organization called This Is My Brave. And their whole mission is to get people talking about mental health, just like we talk about everything else. And so they do that through storytelling. And they bring together a group and do a professional-level show to share their stories about mental health and the hope that comes from um, living with this diagnosis. April 7th at the Egyptian Theater, we're having this Is My Brave decalb, where we have 12 members of our community who are gonna get up and tell their stories about how they live with mental illness and the hope that comes from understanding what that illness means to them. And it is incredible. And it tells me every time we get together that, what we're doing is super meaningful because we do get together and just talk about mental health. Like we talk about what was on television last night and we talk about mental health. Like we talk about what our kids are doing in school and that's the way it should be. And these are, you know, men and women. We have people who are 19 and people who are 50 who are just our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, the people we care about. And they're, they're being brave to share their story so that They don't have to be, the people who come after them don't have to be brave, that we can just share our stories no matter what. And that's really meaningful.
0: How does doing the work, uh, how is that flavored by being a part of this community with a large university smack dab in the middle of the county?
1: There are times where we're very involved with what's going on in the university, and and sometimes we're meeting with the people who provide services on the university. There's a lot of mental health and uh, emotional welfare services that are available at the university that not only students can access, but the community can access. A lot of people don't know about that, and there are times where we are meeting and talking about things all the time. I think a huge benefit is that we have students who are interested in getting into the field or interested in learning about more about mental health and we can connect them to real life experiences where they can decide if this is something that they want to get into we're have we're having a real deficit right now in uh, people who want to get into mental health and substance use and developmental disabilities and we need more students to want to do that for a living. So having the university here really gives us that opportunity to make connections to real life experiences and maybe grow our capacity for um, professionals who want to go into the field. So that's a huge benefit of having the university here. Um, The other thing it does is I think people of a younger generation are really much better about talking about behavioral health care than those of us in an older generation. And so it it helps the storytelling because they're able to talk about the anxiety and depression that they're living with. They're willing to go get help where people of a certain age or who live in more rural areas aren't willing to have those conversations. And so the students are good role models for us to see that, you know what, you actually don't have to feel terrible all the time. You can talk about this and get help and you'll feel better.
0: What kinds of things do you think the, you know, that the field is experienced that maybe is a barrier for people coming into it
1: well, I still think we're dealing with, and, and I hate to say this all the time, but it's not well-funded. And so you're not getting a, a living wage compared to other people. But then there's always the people who are like, I care about people. I want to work with people. And the, and the truth is, we one of the barriers is that we need to make sure we're treating those people well. And that doesn't always happen in the field either, because the burnout rate can be really high. Um, when you care about people all the time, it's hard to always remember to take care of yourself. And so we have people who work in the field for five years and just get burnt out. We burn through them. So we need to figure out how to treat the people who work in these fields much better and teach them healthy coping mechanisms for that. The other thing is mental health is really, you know, it's not something you can grip and hang on to. It's not like a field where you can diagnose, you know, somebody with cancer. You know, diagnosing somebody with mental illness is very difficult to do. And then knowing the best treatment for that Um, we're getting a lot better at understanding how the brain works as an organ, but we don't have that all down yet. And so you might know how to treat somebody who has heart issues and say, yes, this is the protocol for treating heart issues, but what's the protocol for treating somebody with bipolar disorder? There isn't a, a manual that gives you this is exactly what you do. So that still there's not a lot of black and white decisions. And that's scary for people. You're coming into a field where you're not sure what the best course is all the time, and that's that's it, there's insecurity with that. And so I think if you have your choice, sometimes you go where there's more security, where you have the better decision making capabilities. So I think those are some of the barriers that we have. So I think we're we are getting better about having the conversation. We're not there yet, but I think we're we're getting um, a lot more people to the table who maybe weren't coming before to talk about mental health. You know we're involving churches a lot more in these conversations. Uh, We still have a lot of work to do with some schools, but there's other school districts that are all about this and making sure that their uh, students have access to mental health information. We keep mandating that these things happen, that law enforcement knows about mental health, that schools know about mental health, but we're not giving them any funding for that or any real direction. So we're getting closer to having these things be part of what's involved with other careers, but we haven't standardized that yet. So I think we're on our way. We're not there yet. One area that I think we have seen a lot of change is law enforcement and mental health. That's getting a ton of attention right now. On a local level, um, the City of DeKalb Police Department received a strategic planning grant to really look at what is the interaction between law enforcement and people who have mental health issues and came out with this really great strategic plan with some things that need to be changed. And these are things like how you code a call so that you learn if somebody has some mental health issues and the next person who goes out understands that. Um, Do we need somebody who's a police mental health liaison, so that can go out either on a a call with a police officer to help with the mental health side of things or will follow up if it's identified as a mental health call? Do we need a triage center where police officers can bring somebody who's having a mental health crisis instead of jail or the emergency room, which we know aren't really effective? Um, So so there's a, a lot of work being done in that area. The problem is that there's not a lot of funding to go with that. So there's a really dedicated group that's been part of this process from the beginning that are looking at what are those things that we can do right now with the funding we have locally. So people are committed to seeing that improve because we know law enforcement, they're the ones that are there before anybody else. And they're the ones that people call when they're afraid, when they have a loved one who's in crises. So that's a great beginning point to start, uh, getting people the treatment that they need or getting at least people the understanding of what's available to them for their loved ones or themselves.
0: You brought up police so that makes me think of the mental health court idea if you can explain what that is and how we got there. I'm sure that was a long process and kind of where we are in DeKalb County with the mental health court.
1: So mental health courts it, it, it came out of the we started with drug courts and that was the idea that people who are addicted to drugs who commit crimes around that. If we treat their addiction, then we're, we're actually getting rid of the motivation for their crimes. And those have been really successful. So that model was looked at for mental health as well. So if you have somebody who has a mental illness and they commit a crime, not because they had intent to commit a crime, but because of their mental illness, then they need to be treated differently than somebody who is a criminal who commits crime who may have a diagnosis. Those are kind of two different people. And so mental health court is for folks that really don't have criminal intent. Uh, And so mental health court allows them to get the treatment they need so that they don't have uh, criminal activity going on in their life anymore. And it's really hard. So is drug court. I mean, these are really hard for defendants to get involved with because you have to do a lot of work. But the payoff in the end is you've managed to go through this process and stick with it and hopefully come out with uh, a better understanding of your addiction or of your mental health needs. So DeKalb County um, really kind of took that to heart. We're very lucky we have a, a judge and a judicial system that really believes in um, treatment courts to better people and keep them out of jail where most folks who are uh, have mental illness or addiction are victimized um, more than any other part of the population in jail. So it's a really good diversionary process. The problem is, and and it's great, it's a great way to get people into treatment. The problem is somebody has to commit a crime before you set them on the path. And so we really need to have a a system of care where we hopefully can get people before they're committing crimes so that we are not having to send people to mental health court as often. Um, We're ways away from that. Mental health courts great to have on that end of things, but it would really be wonderful to get to the point where we're not having to arrest people who have mental health issues who are committing crimes because of that.
0: And we didn't talk specifically about how does insurance play into this treatment of mental health, in, in your opinion? And I know this is probably a longer podcast, probably, but how does insurance play into all of this?
1: Yeah, you don't like to ask easy questions, no, do sorry. you?
0: sorry.
1: <laughs> so that's probably the biggest frustration that we have is, Payer source. So when um, when somebody needs services, just like they need services for health, you know, physical health reasons, if they need services for medical health or mental health reasons, insurance dictates where and what kind of treatment they can get. So if you have private insurance, that might give you access to uh, psychiatry quicker. It might give you access to um, you know, a, a, a different level of counseling or therapist versus somebody who has a Medicaid or, or Medicare or an MCO, a managed care organization, payer source. And, and so you're getting different treatment based on what your payer source is. And then if you don't have a payer source at all, if you're in, unfunded completely, well, that's where the mental health board steps in. So in our community, people who are completely unfunded can still get services because mental health board dollars will pay for that if you live in a community where there's no mental health board then what do you do as an unfunded person so uh, the other problem with insurance is um that insurance doesn't always play the way they're supposed to play and so they can say well we're only going to let you have six counseling sessions um to deal with your mental health issue or we're only going to pay for two medications when you really need four and that's a called parity, because mental health and physical health should be treated the same way in terms of what your needs are. If you're diabetic, you shouldn't just get two uh, prescriptions for insulin. You should get as much as you need. So the same thing, if you're bipolar, you should be able to get the medicine you need. And so the Kennedy Forum, which is actually located in Chicago, is an advocacy group that really fought to get parity. And Illinois actually has some of the uh, best parity laws in the nation because the Kennedy Forum really fought for that but we're still catching up with the insurance organizations to make sure they're following through and doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, right now, if you wanted to go get mental health services at say Ben Gordon center, they have open call for if you have Medicaid or MCOs that, that they take and they don't take all of the managed care organizations at Ben Gordon, but they take them. You can walk in anytime. If you have private insurance, you might have to wait because therapists are only licensed through so many insurance agencies. So it, it really, and if you're unfunded, you can probably get right in because there's a payer source there. So really, your payer source, your insurance, really does dictate where and how you can get services. And if you're in a mental health crisis, and it's not to the level where you have to be hospitalized, but you're still in crises and you're getting told there is a three-month wait list before we can even get you in for services, it, what, what's your answer there? What can you really do? You can go to the emergency room they're going to kind of look at you and depending on what your needs are, chances are you're probably going to be released and said, go meet with your therapist or go meet with your counselor. And so there, there is some frustration and gaps there that the system needs to
0: work out. But mental health in public spaces is an issue for everybody. And uh, what do you do about that to try to influence the general public and Hey, when someone has, what you perceive as a mental health issue, how should you react? And they have just as much right to be in a public library as you do or walk down the street. What What's your thoughts around how how do we do that? How do we get better at that?
1: So once again, you don't ask any easy questions, do you? There's like six answers to that. So
0: <laughs> You one, can just take a give... piece of it. It's okay, Deanna.
1: <laughs> one, I'll give a plug to um, educating people about what mental health is, is key. So one of the partnerships that the Mental Health Board is uh, entered into is with Northwestern Medicine to provide mental health first aid to the community. We provide that for free. We buy you lunch. It's eight hours of your time, which is a long day. But when you walk out of that, you walk out certified for mental health first aid. And what mental health first aid is, it's kind of like CPR. So how do I how do I interact or deal with somebody who's maybe teetering on a mental health crisis within the community. And so we're teaching people how to handle that, how to deal with that. Uh, And we offer those um, at least four times a year, if not more. And we've just started partnering for youth mental health first aid as well. So if you see a child or an adolescent in mental health crises, you have some skills before you pass them along to a professional. So that's one way that we're doing that is trying to, um, you know, show people that you can be in a space with somebody with schizophrenia and be, you know, that can be just fine.
0: Well, how do how do people find out about when those trainings are coming up? How do you get that word out? So uh,
1: that's a great question. It's really hard sometimes to get information in the community. So we try lots of different ways. And we, you know, try social media and we put it into the newspaper for anybody who still reads that and really through an email list, just sending it out to the people who are connectors in the community who can tell other people about it. Uh, so we really try to infuse the information as many ways as possible out in the community. But somebody can always just, you know, email the mental health board and we can let you know, or email Northwestern Medicine, they can let you know when the next ones are coming up. So we try to make sure and get that to the community. There was a great story that came out of Hope Haven um, when we were talking about schizophrenia and the gentleman I was talking to works at Hope Haven and he said, you know, one of the cool things that people don't think about is that we're a family here. When people live at Hope Haven, they learn about each other. And so if we have somebody who's actively schizophrenic, or you know, bipolar and in a manic episode, the people who live here know not to be afraid that that's just how this person is, and it does. You know, everyone just reacts like you would react to any family member who is you know acting out that day. It just becomes normalized, and so there, that's really an, an awesome opportunity that you can learn that you know everybody just has their thing. And that it, it's not dangerous or scary. It's just part of what's going on with that person at that time being. And I've always loved that story. I've always loved that. Because we
0: have those people in our families, right? Yes. We have that aunt who does this, or we have that uncle that just does that. And that makes total and, sense. Oh, yeah. And so
1: why is it any different when somebody on the street is talking to themselves? Why are you afraid of that person when it's just like the people you're related to at home?
0: So you, we talked a lot about working with other levels of government. I, we talked about working with the police departments, the... Systems, different levels of government. And you work a lot with nonprofit organizations. So you are like this big hub and spoke connector person. Is there any level of government we haven't talked about that you don't interact with? I mean, there's a lot.
1: There is. We we work a lot with, you know, not just law enforcement, but cities, municipalities, townships, villages. You know, we try to decal county is a big county. So um, one of the areas the Mental Health Board kind of interacted was when we had the Fairdale tornado and here we had an area of our community that was very small, but very devastated by this tornado. There were a lot of needs up there. And so we interacted with the village, the county, unincorporated space um, to try to build back Fairdale. And that was both the physical infrastructure. And I learned more about sewers than I ever thought I would in my entire life, but also the emotional, infrastructure that we needed to infuse back in that community. And those are things that, you know, when you think about the mental health board, you don't think about that. But if there are disasters, if there are, um, you know, tragedies within our community, that's when all those levels of government, all those non-for-profits, all those pieces need to be able to come together to serve the, the people who are affected. And so many people are affected.
0: So I teach in our MPA program. A lot of them are future city managers future administrators, um, what do you wish that they knew going into their community from public policy and I'm going to be working in government that maybe would help them do their job a little bit better or think about things a little bit differently from that mental health standpoint? Because these are future city managers, so you have a great deal of influence now before they get into those communities probably. But what what have you seen the the cities or municipalities that do a better job at this?
1: I think what happens with a lot of students who are interested in municipal government or any kind of government is they don't want to talk about mental health like that is the last thing but the truth is city managers come up against mental health issues all the time I got a phone call at 11 once on a Friday night from a, a city in our community that there was somebody who had a mental illness who was standing in the middle of the road screaming and what was I going to do about it and we ended up um, being able to bring everybody kind of together but this person didn't know even how to start helping somebody in their community. They were just, as the city manager, kind of responsible, they thought, for the municipality and making sure everything was okay. So having an understanding of mental health and addiction too, I mean, I I don't want to downplay that addiction and mental health go hand in hand, would would go a long way to understanding what the full constituency of their community is. I was was really lucky, I got to go to Portland, Maine, and um, we were with the police department there, And their mental health and addiction folks are all within like a two block radius of their city because that's where all the services are. And so understanding how do people who have needs, mental health and addiction needs, get to the places they need to go? How do they get to treatment? How do they get transportation to make their appointments? If they need to be hospitalized, if they need residential, what are the things in the city or the township or the area that help them get their needs met with that? Those are things that city managers need to understand and know because it affects how their community interacts, how people see their community, and having a good understanding of that, I think, would make a huge difference in planning.
0: Um, Similarly, when you think about workforce development, private employers, what do you think they need to understand about the populations that work for them or that they work with when it comes to these kinds of issues, either addiction or mental health?
1: Well, once again, I wish the big employers in our community would want us to come do mental health first aid there. Because I think just having that basic understanding makes such a difference. You come out of that going, oh, okay. Some of these things that I was afraid of now make sense. And when you understand things, there's so much less fear about them. So I I think everybody uh, in all employers should have a basic understanding of what mental health is. We all have a basic understanding of physical health. So I think that would be really critical as well. Um, And I think that, you know, even being on top of that more, you hear about every now and then you'll see something go viral where an employer let somebody have a mental health day because they were having anxiety or depression that day. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that wasn't the exception, but it was the rule? Being kind of on the forefront of that, having people work for you or work with you that aren't afraid to say, you know what, by the way, I have debilitating clinical depression and there are days where I just can't make it in. And the employer knowing how to react to that and knowing how to assist with that, instead of that being the exception to have that the rule, that'd be awesome. And I would love to see more employers take that on. And so getting back to, wouldn't it be great if people could just have that conversation? Yeah. If they could not have to, I, I have met so many people who say they can't even talk about their diagnoses because people will treat them differently. And yet, if we had some place where that was just as normal as everything else, how much easier life would be for people?
0: For all of us. Yeah. <laughs> is this the job you thought you would have at 25? And we touched on it already. And it sounds like it wasn't the job that you saw yourself in. But what, what could you go back and tell that 25-year-old self now, knowing where you've come in your career?
1: I think one of the really interesting things about the human services field is that we start off in direct service. And we think we're just going to help people. That's what we're going to do. And we end up in bureaucracy. Uh, I, pay, I push paper for a living now. I'm in meetings all day. When I was 25, uh, no. You know, my idea was that I would be helping people. Um, and of course, I still am. But it's just at such a different level. So the number one thing I would tell myself is pay attention more. Certainly pay attention to politics because it is unbelievable how much that does affect uh, what we do in the the human services field. Also to pay attention to networks because people I met 25 years ago, I'm 50, so 25 years ago, the people that I met often are still the people I'm working with. They're just in different roles. Um, Having those connections has been really beneficial and I wasn't intentional about that when I was 25. I would love to tell myself to be a lot more intentional about that. Um, And I think just having a good understanding of how all the pieces come together. How does government and nonprofit and schools, education is such a huge piece of this as well. Private sector, public sector. How do all those things come together to weave this fabric? Because, um, because that is, you know, now with what I do, trying to make impacts in all those areas is critical. And so I, I wish I had a better understanding of all those pieces when I was younger, so that I would have a better network for that now. These are uh, topics that those of us who do it are very passionate about, and there's not always a good way to let other people know what's going on. And so any way to be able to talk about it and share information with the public is helpful. So I really appreciate you uh, having this opportunity
0: for us. Thank you very much for coming. Join the Mental Health Board for This Is My Brave at the Egyptian Theater this Sunday, April 7th at 3 p.m., where we will hear stories from local people who live with mental illness. If you buy online in advance, tickets are $20 for adults and $15 for students. Proceeds go to This Is My Brave, an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to end the stigma surrounding mental illness through storytelling. Buy your tickets at Egyptiantheater.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of All Things Local, a monthly podcast brought to you from the School of Public and Global Affairs at Northern Illinois University. I'm Dr. Alicia Shademan. Join me next time to discuss issues and ideas facing our local communities. To learn more about our faculty and programs here at NIU, go to niu.edu backslash spga.